You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. In today's episode, Stella and I begin our discussion of detransition. This is an incredibly rich, important, and complicated topic, and we don't think we can lift up every aspect of it. But in this episode, and episode 76, which is the one after next, we'll begin to explore detransition. Today, you'll hear some of our initial observations and some random musings. We touch on some of the patterns and dynamics we've observed, and how things have evolved in the world of detransition over the last several years. We highlight the vast differences between people's experiences of detransition, and how sometimes someone's pathway into a trans identity may impact their pathway out. In episode 76, we'll start diving into the literature and research that we now have about detransition. We'll look at a few important papers, surveys and studies, and what they can tell us about this growing population. We recommend that you look at some of the organizations that were started and run by detransitioners, like Detrans Voices, Post Trans, Detrans Canada, Detrans Sweden, Detrans Russia, GCAN, and of course, check out Detrans Reddit. Therapeutic support can also be found at lifedetransitions.com. All of this is included in our show notes, so you can check out the links there. If there's any group that we've missed or you have suggested topics or guests for future episodes on detransition, please shoot us an email at awiderlenspodcast at gmail.com. We hope you will enjoy this first part of our discussion. Hi, Stella. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really glad that we are doing a, a very deep dive into detransition today. What's on your mind for the episode? Um, what's on my mind, I suppose, as many people probably know who listen to this, is I do work for Genspect and we're about to start a kind of a project, an initiative. We're relaunching Genspect in many ways. We're a year old, year old. On the Happy eight. birthday, Genspect. <laughs> I'm not. I'm a little bit older, but Genspect's just a little year. <laughs> it's just a chubby little baby, one year old on June the 18th. And um, what what we decided for that was to kind of revamp our website and encompass some of the projects that we've landed into in the last year that we couldn't have really expected that we would. And we we were very much led by the demands or the requests or the needs of the community in the larger Mm -hmm. sense. And, you know, we started off very much with being a voice for parents and lifting the parents' voices. And thankfully, the parents' voices are very lifted and I'm thrilled. They've got their platforms in many ways. People are starting to listen to them. But we we came across the detransitioners. We were well aware, you and I are well aware of the the issue around detransitioning and retransitioning and and being unhappy with your medical transition, like some people, but not thinking of detransitioning because you're you're kind of stuck. And so after a lot of of kind of conversation with a lot of people around detransition, we had Detrans Awareness Day that was in March, and that brought us into kind of into connection and conversation with a lot of people who are in the detransition world. Yes. Now, honestly, some of them retransition back, some of them retransition back, but they don't really. They take hormones again, but they're still detransition. It's a complex world. This is not simple. And no. so what we decided to name our project, which is to hopefully help people who are who are on some level lost in tr- transition, we've called it Beyond Transition. And that's the name of the project. We're launching it really like this month for the birthday, tomorrow really for the 18th. And the idea is that we'll encompass anybody who has on some level got lost in medical transition, maybe become disenchanted with their transition. Maybe they want to detransition. Maybe they don't want to detransition. Maybe they just think, where am I and who am I? And we want to help them in a various ways. So we've we've got a few different parts to this. One part of it we're hoping to kind of you know, 
kind of liaise with like organizations such as GETA, you know, gender exploratory therapy and mm-hmm. um, kind of liaise with therapists because we made some money from the um, from the D-Trans Awareness Day uh, conference. And we're putting that specifically into a fund to fund therapy, one to one therapy for anybody who would see themselves in this banner of beyond transition. Wow. Yeah, yeah, because so many of them have been burnt by by the therapeutic process. They feel wary and unhappy and not really very sure whether they want therapy. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're, they kind of agonize over that. And I thought it would be nice if we could offer it so that they can take open it when they want. But money won't be a barrier, hopefully, for these people, because yeah. we will be kind of liaising and organizing. We've got a great uh, person uh, who's going to organize the project between, let's say, people who are beyond transition and the therapists. And so that there will be that they can take up on that when they wish. We are also kind of running a kind of a, a detrans regular space a kind of a hangout a meetup so that they can meet fairly regularly in a group and the idea is if this was a building this would be a center where you could come in for a cup of tea and hang out you know what I mean and there would be people there so we're going to have a regular meeting for people who are consider themselves beyond transition and we want that to be mostly self-led we'll be in the background because we're, we're facilitating it but we're effectively putting out the chairs and offering the tea and coffee yeah. You know what I mean? We're allowing this group to evolve because what we found is in our meetings with, with Beyond Transitioners, we found mostly they had different needs, very different needs. And so we needed to kind of respond to the needs. And you wouldn't really anticipate, I wouldn't have anticipated what the needs would be all that easy. Another part of our Beyond Transition kind of plan is, you know, that idea is you don't, you know, you give a man a fishing rod as opposed to mm. give a man a fish. So we've got a new um, concept called Genspec Rights. And we have some columnists who are writing, just writing around different areas. Let's say somebody writing from the UK, somebody writing from Australia, somebody writing from Ireland. And uh, we've actually a lovely idea for America because we're very well aware of the politics. <laughs> so what we decided is we would have somebody slightly right of centre, thinking man, thinking woman's right of centre, thinking woman's left of centre. Go and write what you please. <laughs> That to That's me, great. yeah, it gets around this. Oh my God, are they left wing? Are they right wing? We're like, we're explicitly showing, you know, slightly center right, slightly center left. There you go. You yeah. can read whatever you want, and therefore we can't be pigeonholed into a into a certain position. So, but with that, we're offering to anybody who considers themselves beyond transition, we'll pay them if they want to submit writing. Do you know what I mean? So very much kind of because some of them are so cerebral, so brilliant with their words that they'll have an opportunity to develop their career in, in that way if they want. But it won't be just that they have to write about. I want to emphasize this. They don't have to write about gender. They can go beyond that, you know, go out, go into the cultural issues because there's so many of them. And let's say, you know, education, culture, there's so much in this world, as you and I have wow. found out. Yeah. So, yeah, we've quite a few different initiatives all under the banner of Beyond Transition. And what we're trying to do is bring a community that has been secretive and fragmented. And there's been a lot of distress in this community. Very understandably, you know all about this because this is a a very fragmented group of people and yeah. even the word detransition is yeah. is, is, a, is yeah. a quite incendiary is it you know people yeah. like is one person who just had hormones for a couple of months are they a detransitioner versus this person who's had you know quite serious surgery and years and years of hormones and the male, the needs of the male detransitioners and the needs of the female detransitioners. So we're mm-hmm. very much on a project of learning with Beyond Transition, ready to kind of see what we can do. I'm sure we'll make many mistakes and I apologize in advance for the mistakes. But the idea is to kind of, can we lift this into a place where they have a strong voice? They had a very strong voice in Detrans Awareness Day and it was very powerful. And so we're hoping that we can continue to maybe empower. I hope so. And if they go on ahead and there's a few organizations like Post Trans and Detrans Voices, they're amazing. And if we can kind of be part of anything that lifts, you know, a self-led movement, we'll be in the background helping if we can yeah. at all, you know. 
I love the idea of kind of providing support and financial support to those who want to write about different things and just kind of trying to help people build up yeah. um, in addition to kind of sharing the the stories because I think as so like I remember in 2016 when I started doing this work there was nobody knew about detransition there were five or six public detransitioners and I think of them as kind of like the first guard and now it's so different I mean there's just thousands thousands of people but the main the main story that's beginning to trickle into the mainstream I think is the one of medical harm. And it's an important story. I mean, it's such a crucial story. And also, there's a lot more to it than that. And so I think your initiatives sound so needed. And that's what I'm really hoping to dive into today, you know, because everybody, I think, who's into this gender world is aware that there are detransitioners and they talk about medical harm. But there's a lot of complicated, nuanced, really intricate things that I've observed and I'm sure you've observed. And I'd love to just kind of air some of that out today. Yeah, there are so many different needs. And I think I was quite basic when I first came across detransitioners. I knew they exist. And I'd heard from the research they were tiny. And when I was making the film in 2018, I was handed this yellow book called Blood and Visions. And Mm. it was seminal for me. I I started to read it on an airplane and I just went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This book. It was like a precious, a precious few pages of of this. These stories need to get out there. And if everybody heard these stories, everything would change. Everybody's understanding of this would would deepen. Can you describe the book for any listeners who don't know about it? No, it's about maybe 10 stories I might get this wrong it's quite a few years since I read it and it's just self-written um narratives of what happened to them and it's pretty much I think they were all women and they were all mostly lesbians if not all of them were lesbians and it was so strong and it was absolutely no holds barred take no prisoners very straight writing very powerful writing very hard to get your hands on that book i i find it hard anyway i've recommended it to loads of people and i i it was really straight talking of i'm a woman this is what happened to me i lost myself and then i detransitioned and i found myself again and it was harrowing harrowing stories of hormones, of surgery, of regret, of anger, of violence. They were they were really powerful. And um it 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 changed me. It changed me because I kind of knew that this must be happening. Intuitively it just made sense to me. And I'd been told the phrase I was always told was, you know, the number of detransitioners are vanishingly small, Stella. Stop talking about them. That was the phrase I kept on getting told. <laughs> not by not by the director and mm, the producer mm-hmm, who were lovely, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. by on high. And mm-hmm, I was like, mm-hmm. this doesn't make sense to me. And then I found that book and I went, aha, there's a secret community that nobody knows about that neither story lifted. And in the end, we did get a detransitioner. She wasn't from Blood and Visions. Her name was Kale, but she came on the film. And I was so pleased because I was, I was waved away in that way that I'm sure you're used to and I'm sure our listeners are used to. You know, it's not important. They kind of they yeah. undermine your point, and they say, "No, this is just you're talking about freaky low numbers here." You know, fraction st- of a fraction, yeah. a minority within a minority. Yeah. I, we always hear, "Let's worry about the the first minority first, which is trans people." Yeah, and then we can worry about detrans in a very derogatory and patronizing yeah. way. Yeah, that's right. Like, you're being a little bit silly and a, like a bit outlier here. Could you come mm-hmm. back in into into kind of normal land? And then I came across this book and I was like, yep, this is what I thought might be happening. Yeah. And it's a secret community. And it was pathologically secret, I would argue, back then. It's so secret. And they found themselves. Do you remember coming across your detrans- first detransitioners? Was it? I, I remember, um, yeah, within that first cohort, starting to read papers by Carrie Callahan at the time and... Um, there were several detransitioners, interestingly, one of one of whom I know has retransitioned and gone quite 
quite um, extremist again. But I remember just thinking, oh my God, these, these people's stories are just like this concentrated story about body hatred, uh, internalized homophobia, trauma, so much, so much. And, and I remember just feeling, um, like they have this secret information that everybody needs to hear. Everybody needs to hear this. And I I just remember that being a very powerful feeling. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the awful tribal nature of, I have detransitioned. I have joined this fold and now I have retransitioned. I will now reject everything from this fold and I'll go over to this group. Mm-hmm. And that is tragic to me because we, we could actually all, like if we weren't, I, just give me a little bit of magic land for a second. If we were living in, a, in, a, in a, a, an, all, an almost um, healthy society, detransitioners would be really important part of trans people's lives because we would all be learning so much from them. We would be learning so much about how it all didn't work out, what made it not work out. And even back, if you look at Dejna from 2011, that study of Swedish um, transitioners, and it was a 40-year study, a long-term study, a quality peer-reviewed study, just saying, well, you know, and it emerged that they had very difficult lives, that they were 19 times more likely to die by suicide, that they were more likely to end up in hospital, psychiatric hospital, in, in prisons. But it was a really, it was a really, I would argue, it was a good faith study of trying to figure out what goes right and what goes wrong in transitioned people's lives. And wouldn't you think, if we lived in a healthy society, that that's what we'd be doing now with detransitioners going, okay. This is a very valuable uh, feedback and uh, we have got things wrong. And every professional who is good at their work wants to hear how they got something wrong. I, I that's think that's right. a really like for me, if, if somebody came to me and said, you know, you worked with me and it was not healthy, it didn't work out. I'd be devastated, but I would hope that I could be you know, woman enough to say, thank you. Please let me know more. You know, because I don't want to do that. I want to help people. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's such a good point. And um, the the lack of curiosity about the stories that didn't go well is really weird to me. And I do think it indicates that we're talking about a belief system, because if you challenge the belief, belief system, you all of a sudden become a heretic. You become an outsider and you become someone trying to tear down a good holy movement. Like there's so many um, parallels here in, in other kinds of, you know, hysterias that we've seen where you're either the good guy or you're the bad boy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we can talk about con- contemporary detransition. I think this looks a little bit different from, for example, in the Dejna study that you talked about, I believe that's the same study, correct me if I'm wrong, but where they described that the regret period st- seems to set in around the 10-year mark. Yeah. Is that that study? That's it, yeah. So, I mean, when we look at, like, the, I guess, more, quote, classic um, population of people who were transitioning, I think we're talking about something quite different, right? People who, um, even though I don't necessarily believe in so- so-called true trans, I think there's a type of gender dysphoria that's a little bit more organic than a teenager who first adopts a belief system and then becomes trans. That's a different thing. And I think that Aaron's do a really good job of distinguishing those types of dysphoria on their podcast. But like contemporary detransition, of course, takes on a different flavor than maybe the 10 year regret rates that we might have seen in past populations. Like, I think this is a bit different. We've got to get words. We've got to get words for all. This. I keep, yeah. I keep shifting. I keep saying organic yeah. and spontaneous for dysphoria, and then I say contemporary or modern. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. There's, but you know, I, I think yeah. uh, it's the old cohort and the new cohort. It's yeah, really, yeah. you know, the old cohort were a very specific cohort, and they were there, and their numbers of 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 detransition were low, and frankly, it was very difficult to medically transition in the first place. And actually, but even then, we don't know quite no, we how don't know. low. 
we don't, we don't know. know quite Marcus how well. Evans, the psychoanalyst, was very interesting because he first noticed transitioners coming in with that Dejna 2011, the kind of the slope and the kind of emotional mm-hmm. tanking at 10 years. He first came across them when he worked in King's, King's Cross Hospital and he found quite serious, you know, suicide attempts and, and self-harming attempts in in like medically transitioned people. So we don't know the numbers. The research is really paltry and there's yeah. there's no real knowledge. There's there's vague indications of different things. But we do know a couple of things. We do know it was very difficult to medically transition that, you know, you it was very low numbers who actually did medically transition and societally. It wasn't celebrated. It wasn't it. They just weren't present. So they weren't there to be seen. Not everybody knew somebody or um, uh, who was transitioning. It just was a very different world. So now the new cohort have been celebrated and arguably maybe the old cohort were told this is going to be a really hard life. Are you sure you want to do it? Are you really sure you're going to do it? Mm -hmm. This is a really difficult life. Medically, this is really difficult. Societally, it'll be really difficult. Now, this new cohort have been told this is fabulous and this is really amazing addition to your life. And we can't envisage any problems. Like I saw it, I know I've said it before, but I saw it with Jazz Jennings. She was basically led to believe this is the easiest thing in the world. And all she has to do is turn up at the appointments. And you could see her face when the doctor started saying, this is actually really difficult. It was news to her. Mm-hmm. She didn't realise that this is going to be incredibly difficult. And they said things like, well, this is, you know, pioneering surgery. And she was clearly like, what are you talking about? I thought I thought this was easy. And it hasn't been easy. I thought this is life-saving care. No. And she really did think it. She just so thought, that- you know. Yeah, that that makes me think that the the childhood transitioners will look different in their detransition than the kids who started around 16, 17. I mean, they're, of course, children, but I think there's a very different flavor when you are very young and your parents are the ones kind of initiating all of this contact with the medical industry. And I, I just, I want to touch on something that I've noticed from you know, listening to a lot of detransitioners, especially because the way people are kind of processing so many aspects of their life and their evolution is through social media. There are kids whose entire self-concept was born on, expressed by, and exacerbated by the internet. So we're seeing like a social media version of identity exploration. And so every time there's a new shift in a young person's self-perception, there's an announcement about it. And this is not always, because like a lot of kids I work with that are more on the anxious side of the spectrum, they watch. So they, they watch YouTube videos, they watch TikTok videos, they read the comments, but they may not be posting. But it's still, you know, that kind of... uh cross-pollination of like what other people are doing versus how you start to think about yourself. And what I see sometimes, one kind of version of this is that sometimes detransitioners will go from having been really obsessed with looking like the other gender or like neutralizing the appearance of their gender to then detransitioning and going radically in the opposite direction. So these are detransitioners. Let's say you have a female detransitioner who went from trying to look as masculine as humanly possible to wearing a ton of makeup, having big elaborate wigs, uh, very, very feminine clothing, spending hours on her appearance to look feminine. And I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. Like there's still... Um, I shouldn't say the word still because that implies that there's a better place to go because everybody's process is unique and I, I respect wherever people are. But it's it's interesting to be kind of like trapped by that binary nonetheless. Like you went from trying to suppress everything about you that looks feminine to now accentuating it in this very um, deliberate manner. 
And I, I just find that very interesting to see the detransitioners go from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I find it incredibly linked with what you started speaking about, which was the Internet, because the, the, the emphasis on how we look being a representation of who we are has just gone beyond beyond anything we could have ever imagined. And it used to be, it doesn't matter how you look, it's who you are inside. The eyes are the window to the soul. And we used to be told, you know, body acceptance and self-acceptance was where it's at. And it slowly but very surely moved to how you look, you know, look good, feel good. And how you look represents how you feel. And, uh, you know, basically put the best foot forward. And if you don't look good, I actually discussed this in quite a lot of detail in my book, Fragile. I talked about an anxiety and I was talking about how usually when I'm happiest, I've kind of got like oily hair and maybe a ponytail and my old jumper. And I'm walking along with the kids and I, I look like a lout. Like, you know <laughs> what, what is a mean? lout? I don't know that word. <laughs> a thug. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And I don't look good anyway, because, you know, I'm not that bothered. And I, 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 I would have an ease in my physicality, if you follow me. And when I'm out and I'm dressed up, I'm, I'm not quite as... Now, some people are. Some people love looking good and it mm-hmm. gives them a buzz and it puts them right and off they go. Well, I shouldn't say sadly, but however, the Internet has really created a world where what your brand is represents you. And yeah. then you immediately from going talking about the Internet, you started saying and the these there's a whole new cohort who were brought up on the Internet who suddenly if I feel masculine, I have to dress. I have to brand masculine. If I feel feminine, now I have to dress accordingly. I literally have to dress my personality here. Yeah. Well, I, I honestly I, I, I grew up. I know in my teen years I was so uninterested in how I looked it was irrelevant it literally I I didn't even if you'd said what did that person wear I wouldn't have known I wouldn't have had any concept but Mm. what music did they like I could give you an extensive analysis of, (laughs) of what music they liked and it's it's it feels to me that the extraordinary I I know I I I often say it's vanity and I don't mean it in a derogatory way I think they've been led into a massive emphasis on their looks I see it in my own children a very, very definite emphasis on looks at a young age that continues. And it starts with selfies. It starts with the baby when they're six months old. Yeah. They've had more yeah. photos taken than my entire childhood. Oh, my gosh. That's such a good point. Well, you know, initially when you started saying this, my my mind kind of went to, um, you know, like... In America, you know, binge eating and the obsession with skinny models. Do you remember? I don't know if that happened in Ireland too, but there was this whole thing when I was young about Kate Moss and like these, you know, deathly thin models. Heroin chic, right. And then I'm thinking about like the 80s with the aerobics obsession and all the anorexia. So, I mean, at least in terms of, and then even bodybuilding, like men being obsessed with muscles. I don't think it's entirely new, but I think... One of the big differences is that when you spend your whole life online, it is a completely visual medium. Whereas like if you're outside playing on the swings, you know, you're probably not thinking that much about your appearance while you're being thrust back and forth in the air and your heart's like dropping into your stomach. Like there's, there's something different about when you get your social and developmental thrills from scrolling on the internet, it's completely visual and mostly only visual. I mean, you're not really doing much else while you're looking at your phone. So I think this has really created uh, the environment that like facilitates gender ideology too, because if you think about it, they say, well, you know, oh, well, it's kind of confusing because like some people say um, you have you know, if you want to express the gender that you feel you are with your appearance, that's gender expression. And they also say it doesn't matter how you express yourself, whatever identity you say you are is the identity you are. So th- there's a lot of contradictions within it. But you can see when we think about the visual medium of social media and the way it's disconnected from these kind of other things, it really does create like a perfect recipe for uh, having to present visually who you are. And I think it's brilliant, Stella, that you brought up the word branding. 
because this really feels like part of this too. You know, there's so many different little enclaves within TikTok and like sub TikToks and <clears throat> each has their own vibe and their own brand. I mean, everything from, you know, nutrition posts to like hacks to cook and clean or like there are all these different brands within these social yeah. media spaces and I mean, showing my age, I'm looking at TikToks about how to clean and cook. But anyway, <laughs> we're so different. Teenagers are not. <laughs> um, um, I think you're right there, and I think there's there's a couple of things I want to pick up on. To me, childhood is uh, it's kind of freedom from self consciousness, and when you become self conscious, you move from childhood to adolescence and you yes. become self conscious. Yes. Now, to me, that self consciousness is being imposed upon children at a young age with the with the extraordinary number of photos that have been taken of them. The children these days, by four or five, have learned their game face. They have learned smile at the camera, and they've learned it really in in a way that, like, I have a, fa- a friend who's famous, and whenever um she just in in Ireland, whenever we go out. People ask her for a photo and she immediately just puts on her famous face like uh, she's so used to it. She just puts it on. I can see that in five year olds now. They're so used to camera. Yeah, here, smile. Posing, posing yeah. through the camera. And they have yeah. their professional pose that they've they've just kind of learned. Yeah, yeah, you just stick it on because she just sticks it on and somebody takes the photo and off we go. And she goes and then back on. And they are learning that and they're learning self-consciousness at a very young age. I think that's a really big deal because the whole thing about childhood is rawr, I don't care what I look like. I'm falling mm. around, my legs are akimbo. Who cares? I literally haven't learned to be self-conscious until puberty strikes. That's very interesting. I, I don't know if I see it quite that way. I'm thinking about just the performative aspect and I'm thinking about how within some families, maybe it's within some cultures, like children are expected to behave a certain way and that forces you to become self-conscious. You know, like if you're expected to not run around and disturb oh, parents, yeah. oh, like yeah. you have to be really self-conscious. So I'd, I'd be curious if this is different in different That's families, but to... To the concept of detransition, I would be interested in whether or not a person who's detransitioning, do they have that hyper self-consciousness? And if they do, I mean, that might be something really important to become aware of and perhaps disconnect from a bit because we we, we really can't be very self-conscious and connected with ourselves at the same time because self-consciousness means that we're porous and we're thinking about the judgment of others, right? Yeah. So you can't actually care that much what other people think if you're trying to stay kind of like connected with who yeah. you are or figure out how to live in the world. And so this this kind of extreme presentation of like hyperfemininity for female detransitioners or, I mean, there's less male detransitioners that I'm aware of. So I'm curious of how this pops up with, with them. I think it's a little different, but I'm interested in that. It's not always the case. Yeah. This is one thing I've seen. One thing I've noticed with, with detransitioners from conversations and from working with them is that some of them are liberated from their looks. They're liberated. They've, they've made their peace and they said, I don't care anymore. I have yes. freed myself from the visuals and it's a liberated position and it feels very very nice to be around they're like it's over I don't care therefore I won't get reconstruction surgery and every time somebody suggests reconstruction surgery frankly I roll my eyes it's not gonna happen I don't care because I've given up on on the looks aspect of 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 my life not given up but I've given up is the wrong word I've freed myself from it because it's not necessarily negative this isn't a, a case of somebody saying Oh, I'm so awful looking. It's kind of no, no, no it's not. It's that. like I, I am now released from the constraints very much of obsessing over my appearance. And that feels beautiful to be around. But I do think other uh, de- maybe detransitioners are uh, they feel devastated. They feel devastated that they they made themselves less beautiful. They made themselves um, in a way that they that society will make them less acceptable, and they feel a, a deep sense of shame around it, and want to get reconstruction. And again, we go into a community that there is not agreement. It's not a community. It's it's a lot of people who've yes. been hurt by something, and they come at it from so many different ways. 
And I think uh, that really needs to be acknowledged. One person could charge off and want to get reconstruction very, very quickly. And somebody else could be devastated by even their friend getting reconstruction. Yes. They could feel hurt. They could feel like you're betraying me. You're you're going to get reconstruction. Is that not part of the same spectrum? Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You're you're actually hurting my, our, Mm -hmm. our, 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 our connection. Because mm-hmm. I'm so against the idea of, of more medical intervention when, when it's not necessary. And, you know, I, th- I, think, I, I think it's such a difficult place to be in at such a young age that I have space for all sorts of thoughts and beliefs around yeah. it. Yeah, that's right. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. I think about like, you know, because I consult with so many parents and I work with these young people, and I think about the type of kid who, let's say just like three weeks prior to her trans announcement, she was doing makeup tutorials on YouTube for hours a day, and she was obsessed with, like, her clothes and her fashion. And and then she kind of goes into this boy appearance and puts just as much energy into that, you know? And, and then it makes me think about, you know, perhaps the detransitioners... Well, first of all, I, I want to make it really clear. I think these are all processes that are in flux. So sometimes right after a person decides to detransition, they might be in that space where they're putting a lot of energy into their appearance. And sometimes you catch up with that person a year later and they've really taken a much more kind of comfortable, natural stance about appearance. So this is all shifting and in flux. There's not like boxes that people fit into. But I do wonder if like the person who's jumping into a hyper feminine appearance once she's detransitioned, maybe she was that kid who loved makeup and fashion and all that stuff. And then she feels like she betrayed herself by taking on this masculine appearance, which I think this is different from, you know, a young woman or a woman who's always been highly gender nonconforming and maybe was driven to transition because of the constant like friction with society or people making comments about her appearance or feeling insecure about standing out. That's a different thing than the girl who went from being a hyper feminine, like super girly girl to like a boy to detransition. Like these are all very different stories. And I just think it's worth kind of pointing that out. Mm. There are a lot of different ways that people get into transition. And therefore, there are a lot of people who will have different paths out. And I'm I'm also thinking about Stella. I wonder if you've seen this. People who, rather than kind of making a grand announcement and putting on a ton of makeup or, like, telling the world, there are people who trickle out of detransition. And and I've heard, like, and this may be even more so true for desisters, um, I've heard people say, you know, I don't really care what pronouns people use for me anymore. It's like, whatever. Yeah. And you're like... Oh, you you mm. made a, a big fuss about the pronouns in the first place, but mm. now you don't care about the pronouns. So, like, I see there be being people kind of slowly creeping out of their trans identity. There's more layers. There are people. I think trickling out is such a good creeping out. It's such a good um, um, image. There is a whole group or cohort who who detransition insofar as they stop hormones but they choose not to tell anybody. So they're still presenting, but they themselves have said, no, I, I'm not buying this whole gender identity, but I, I can't face the attention that would happen if I say the word detransition. I'm not going to say it. I'm in that other space. And there isn't a name for them. And, I, you know, stopped, stopped medicalizing my gender identity would be the catchy name that I'd come up with. And then there's another cohort that I've noticed 
that um, allow, and there's more of them than people realise, they allow the world outside to see them as male. They accept that when they go to the shop, when they get the bus, when they get the subway, they uh, will be accepted as male and they present as male. Well, they don't, yeah, they pretty much present as male. Yeah, they do. Because as they've often said to me, I still have gender dysphoria. I still want to look male. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. However, everybody who knows me well knows that I'm female. And I've gone back to the other name and I've gone back to pronouns, but I don't care about pronouns. And then as I get to know them a little bit better and they say, and I'll be honest, I get a secret thrill when they when I get gendered as male, even though I'm female. And I'm like, there's so much going on here. <laughs> like, So effectively, I'm male in the streets and I'm, I'm female uh, among my intimates and my friends mm. and my family because this is how because as of quite a few people have said it's so difficult to present as let's say female or or the opposite when you have transitioned a certain level that it's not worth trying to tell every stranger actually you're talking to a woman then the, the toilet issue becomes a real nightmare for these people a real nightmare so they're effectively presenting um uh as male but they've detransitioned in yeah. mind but yeah. they, they've accepted that the detransition process isn't working in physicality and they're living this dual life. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like that is mm-hmm. really a, a, a very, to me, a, a, a pretty exhausting mental place to be. And I don't I don't have solutions. I don't say, oh, well, and they should do A, B or C. No, I don't no, I yeah. don't see what mm-hmm. they can do because they do. They do have arguably really gone quite deep into the physicality of the other sex. Well, as I think about that, and again, I don't have an exact parallel experience to draw from at all, but I'm imagining that at some level, this has to be a person who says to themselves, especially when they're out in the world, I know who I am. Yeah. The people who love me know who I am. Yeah. And there are going to be mixed reactions from the outside world. Sometimes those reactions thrill me. Sometimes I'm neutral. Sometimes they probably aggravate me. But it's not about other people. It's about me yeah. and my close, intimate circle. And like when I think about that, I'm I think, wow, that's actually a, seems like a pretty healthy place to be. Yeah. Um, I imagine it makes it makes it complicated to build new relationships mm-hmm. because there's so much story to explain, right? But I think. Going through the kind of hell and back process of transition and detransition, I think that's probably a good place to be. There isn't further, as there always is in life, there is a further complexity that if somebody still has gender dysphoria and is still getting the mm. thrill of, of, let's say, presenting as male, and um, maybe that hasn't been alleviated in other ways, which we spoke about in the other tra- in the other G-Trans episode where we talked about, you know, bodybuilding or mm-hmm. mountain walking or, or horse riding I'm fond of. And I think it's my own feeling is now I'm I, I have all I've got is anecdotal evidence, but my feeling is retransition is higher on the agenda. It's very much reminds me of um, when I worked with, let's say I've worked an awful lot with alcoholism. And some some people, and it's not the same, very different process, but I'm talking about an analogy for anybody who wants to misunderstand me. I just want to clarify that. But as some people who are alcoholic, they give up the lifestyle and they say, I'm going to start a new lifestyle. I'm going a different way and I'm going a different. I'm going to socialize differently. I'm not going into pubs. I'm not going to continue that lifestyle. Some cling on to the old mm. lifestyle and they say, no, I'm just drinking Coke. I'm just drinking Coke. And they are much more likely to relapse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so, so close to it. Yeah. And th- that's the thing about transition. Your body has made you so close to it. Yeah. So if you are female, but ostensibly pass often as male, you can are do you all the jumping through hoops that, yeah. that you want. I mean, your body is projecting a certain idea. And, and I do think that's such a good point. You're so right. And I, I've seen, like, we touched on this a little bit two episodes ago. There are some people who come to determine that their appearance is too far in the direction of the other gender. It doesn't really make sense. And I I wonder if those are perhaps people that don't have like a really strong loving support system of people who 
will re-recognize them as female and embrace them as female. Like if you don't have a support system and the only people you interact with are people who are gendering you as male, it's probably much harder to kind of stay with that female sense of knowing of, like that you are female, right? If that makes sense. Yeah. So this is a very important point. And I wonder too, we talked about that kind of first first wave of detransitioners based on, again, this is just observational some of the stories that I know of there, I wonder if a person is not conscious of that process. Like, actually, had I not developed such masculine features, it would have been easier for me to detransition and stay detransitioned. And so maybe they kind of jump into that ideology, like you talked about, right? Like looking for the baddies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's very complicated, and there's probably so much happening beneath the surface stories yeah and if if you're female and you've transitioned your testosterone fueled male voice can often mean every stranger interaction is difficult if you if you're presenting as female and you have a male voice every single time you you buy something in the shop you get some petrol everything there's there's a shock in the person's face there's there's a you know a kind of a processing happening. A disorientation. Yeah, that can find, people can find t- tiresome. But I do want to kind of raise the point that more and more, and it, it's been since Dietrich's Awareness Day in March, that we've really met so many, so many. They came so fast, the male detransitioners. And yes, they came yes. in their numbers. And um, I feel, I, I, you know, I've always been devastated with the female detransitioners and now I feel a whole new kind of devastation for Mm -hmm. for these people because so many of them are feeling so left out and many of them have kind of shockingly um identified issues around feminism and 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 a a kind of a fear of being masculine a fear of being a man uh, uh, not knowing how to be a man and I just think oh my god we've really we've really lost our way with this and I used to always think that the, the mastectomy was the double mastectomy was the was the line. It's like when they've had a mastectomy, this seems so hard. Then you hear of hysterectomy and then you hear of genital surgery and the detransition to genital surgery. People who've had, you know, reassigned genital surgery and they've detransitioned. I do think they need as an, a special level of support that yeah. I think we need to kind of bring this into the world and realize that this has happened. And these people are here and they've had genital um, surgery and they need support because they were yeah. born in whatever sex they were born. And they it's really, really difficult for them. It's a really, really difficult place to be. Uh, this is this is really important. And I I would love to continue to keep my eye on what's happening with male detransitioners because I am starting I am starting to hear their stories more. What have you witnessed in terms of their kind of the psychological place that they're in what can you say for me uh loneliness has been the big word that i you know i i i've really grappled with that i've felt a sense of of utter isolation and utter loneliness and a deep deep despair for their future there's a feeling of if i won't have a sexual mate and i don't think i will have because perhaps of genital surgery, I I I am alone. I'm alone in a way that you'll never be alone, Stella. And, you know, it's debatable. People can have extraordinary relationships in many different ways. And I often think sex is kind of over, over-emphasized. Well, it obviously is in society. However, there's an intimacy with it that is very hard to replace in other we- ways. And so yeah. I suppose I, I feel the sense of loneliness and isolation and despair from male uh, detransitioners has has been, you know, very, very harrowing for, mm. for me. I, I've really felt this this is extraordinary. And I'll, I, I must admit, in they, you know, they go they either go back on testosterone or whatever happens but anger. A lot of anger. I was just going to say, mm. I, I can imagine the waves of absolute rage. rage. Like rage and then um, kind of just relinquishing and then rage and yeah, relinquishing. Rage and despair. I can just imagine. Rage and despair. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's the way it goes. And there's another group, I think, that have their own 
Um, and I've noticed they're very emphatic that I'm different. I'm pediatric detransition. I transitioned mm. as a child and that makes me different from the adult transitioners. And I'm like, oh my God, more categories. <laughs> more, well, we touched yeah, on this yeah. at the beginning. I think that's right. Yeah, what what else are they saying? They the they feel, a, I think, an understandable and justifiable greater sense of rage of what was done to me when I was a child. While I think the adult maybe feel a, a deeper sense of shame of what I did yes. to myself. Yes, oh my and, God. And, uh, you, you know, I, I honestly think both sides I would have the professionals involved kind of in my line of fire and I would argue that but yeah the pediatric transition is so you know inarguably wrong when this person decides to detransition and they've been shaped in a very deep way they there's a huge amount of and I I, I really think we've got to and it's one of the things one of the great ideas around well great I say self-praisingly, but one of the interesting ideas around uh, Beyond Transition is we need to get some sort of information around endocrinologists. We have a couple of endocrinologists that are saying, well, we don't know very much. We're going to have to build up a kind of a, a, a knowledge base around endocrinology because so many, for example, are saying that like three years off testosterone, my face has, sh- has softened. I'm very different. I look very different than I looked after year one. And therefore, all the people who are detransitioning in year one need to know that you're going to soften. Your body is going to soften in a way that you won't quite expect if estrogen is, is brought back into it. And the different levels of if estrogen won't be brought back in or if it's going to be a, a kind of a medical estrogen because you've had a hysterectomy and things like that. There's so little knowledge and they swap knowledge and they swap knowledge. And I keep on thinking, well, one person, you know, one person takes, I seem to bring everything back to alcohol, I'm out. But then one person takes a drink <laughs> and they get drunk. And one person takes, you know, eight drinks and they don't get, it depends on, it's very noticeable with testosterone yeah. and estrogen. For some people, it hits very hard, very quickly. And for some people, it doesn't. It seems to take a long time. So we mm-hmm. need we need a knowledge base around how the detransition process it kind of plays out yeah. e- even if it's not the de- the stopping the medical transition process plays out because everybody is really clueless about clueless this. yeah and and i mean i'm aware from like a couple of cases of childhood transition the pediatric transitioners who want to come off both they and their parents are feeling uh completely misled and confused by the medical doctors and the psychiatrists and therapists and have no idea how to come off of these drugs. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. Imagine, you know, you Mm -hmm. have like a 17 year old kid who they're just barely entering the like sexual years of their life. And they're on these medications that impact their reproduction and they don't know what's happening and they can't find doctors who do i mean that's really scary and uh quite a few of them have spoken about they're kind of which is quite of lovely they're they're delighted if they get their periods back and they're worried if they don't get their periods back and what that signifies so a whole new experience around periods which is very extraordinary for them and very deep but then Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I've yet met a female, uh, maybe I have, and they haven't said it, I'm sure I have, I'm exaggerating, many, many female to male uh, transitioners who transition back to female believe that the, that testosterone played around with their libido in quite a significant manner, that when they got testosterone, their libido shot up, and uh, then when they went off testosterone, they lost their libido, and they worry it won't come back. And some of them, it really does seem to have impacted it. I don't know. We're still in the early, very early days. So we, we have no idea. You and I are just flagging issues that might, in, sure. f- in five years, it might all level out and the, the libido might have come back. But in these first few years of the new cohort detransitioning, that seems to be an issue. And I can see how if I was a female to male and if I had a huge libido and enjoyed it, and then I went off testosterone and I still presented as male because honestly, I, I was really quite masculinized. Mm-hmm. And then I knew that I, if I took testosterone, my libido would go up and I have a, a partner. I have a new partner. I, yeah. I can see a huge temptation with that. And it won't only be, uh, it won't only be libido, it's energy and it's, 
there's a lot more that testosterone seems to bring. Yeah. I remember one one detransition talking to me and saying just I I just felt exhausted the first few years. I cried and slept. I was just so tired compared to oh. the turbocharged man I had been. You, you know what mm, I mean? Mm-hmm. So there does feel like a loss. Now I haven't got as a, as as got as as much detail around the estrogen loss, which I'm sure people might write in and tell us. But um it's it's yeah. Huge. It's interesting because also I'm thinking about somebody like Helena Kirshner, like her experience on testosterone was awful. She didn't yeah. have that fantastic like yeah. burst of positive energy. She was doing terribly. Um, and I, my understanding of the, the male to female transitioners and detransitioners is that like I've heard people talk about having access to more emotions while on estrogen. So and I've fun. heard people talk about kind of suppressing like the aggression and the rage that they felt yeah. when their testosterone was free flowing. Yeah. So there's probably like a totally different emotional experience and perhaps a craving for that richness, the 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 depth of emotional experiences that maybe estrogen gave someone access to, yeah. which is in itself a loss. I mean, it's it's such a, a trippy thing to think about a person using hormones to experience these very different ways of interacting with themselves, with other people around them, with their sexual drive, with the world, and and then to have that kind of come and go. I I can imagine there being like a grieving on both sides of that, right? Like if you realize you need to detransition, you're grieving all the stuff that you realize you cut yourself off from. And then you may also grieve some of the aspects of things that felt good while transitioning. So it's very complicated. Yeah, it really is. I, I do think that there's an awful lot of of grief, obviously, and loss to be kind of contemplated with this. I do think the the the, the range of emotions that seems to be available to the estrogen driven person does seem to be much, much wider. Yeah. From anecdotally what from what I hear. I, I really wonder, like, it feels, brings me back to the concept of my true self. Because if mm. my true self loses estrogen and gets testosterone, my true self has changed. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's and right. So it's like, well, what is my true self somebody who actually has no estrogen or testosterone and there's somebody within me who's my... Like a blank slate yeah, kind yeah. of hormone-free person? Yeah. But there's no there's no thing. I think that's the thing. We There's no such thing. I, I mean, don't we, think so. We are, we, we are like in we a body which has its its ups and downs and its different moments and different experiences, and you can't separate the two. You just mm. can't. But I mean, from that perspective, I kind of get why gender identity is so tempting because we want to believe that, like, you know, if you're, let's say, you wake up and you're having a really bad day and you feel like crap. There's a part of you internally that thinks. This isn't me. I don't want to feel this, you oh, know? Yeah. So I get why there's this temptation to think there is this authentic person inside of you and it's blissful and it's wonderful. And this terrible body that you're confined in just throws crap your way that is not the real you. I get why that's tempting. Yeah. But of course it's it's not right. It, it we're both. I mean, we're both a consciousness that can to some degree, we we can become aware of our bodies and think beyond them, but also we can never be separate from them, and we have to work with them. It's so interesting because if if you, I know this sounds mental, but if you if if I had your body, <laughs> would I be you? You, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, totally. If we pa- like parent swap, have you seen that movie where we just wake up in different bodies? What would happen? Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I really think that the impact of our body shapes everything about me. That's right. Yeah, That's we, right. we are of our bodies, and the, the 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 idea that there's some sort of true self within me. It's so it's so religious. It's so Christian for me. It's so Catholic my soul, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was very much driven by this idea that we had a soul inside and our soul would live on and you can't dress the soul. And, and that the body degrades us. I mean, I think that's yeah. a, 
I mean, not all Catholics feel this way. I've, I've read a lot of really interesting material from Catholic thinkers and writers. But like when I was young, my understanding was the body, the flesh is sinful. Yeah. It will degrade your perfect, peaceful, beautiful soul. Oh, my God. And therefore, you have to kind of rise above the debasing desires of the body. Like that, that idea yeah. is really interesting when you think about it in the context of gender. Wow. Yeah, um, that's such a really good point. The dirty, dirty body and your your pure, pristine soul. And nowadays, it's your your gender identity is something within you that needs to be dressed as such with with what, whatever way you you wish. And that that's where it starts moving into. I'm kind of trans mask, but I'm a demi boy as well, and I need to get it just right. And it feels like we're creating ourselves. And creating ourselves used to mean, um, uh, you know, creating a personality, creating a life. But now it means creating a physical demonstration physical, of what yeah. I am, a representation. When I was a kid, there was an awful lot of emphasis on, are you happy? When I was, you know, mm. uh, questioning adolescent and what would make me happy. And then it, I kind of vaguely, it took me a long, long time to realize, actually, it's very fleeting. And this idea of chasing happiness was such a fool's errand and I needed to look for meaning and purpose and yeah. moments of happiness and and understand that it's a it's a and I feel the new one is is my true self it's the new it's the same kind of fool's yeah. errand trying to find your true self and it's like it's the very same as trying to find happiness it's like good luck with that yeah. life is too changing to to, to yeah. find it and instead, it's kind of, what can you do today? What can you knock out of today? You've got today. Yeah. You've got your body. Yeah. You've got yeah. your limitations. And, you know, do the best you can with it. I know we're coming up towards the end of our time. But there are a few points that I just wanted to touch on as we're talking about all the complexity and detransition. Um, I think the, the, the kids who started identifying as trans after they've adopted a belief system about gender they may be particularly susceptible to taking on another radical belief system once they've detransitioned or once they've, let's say they've stopped believing in gender. Um, what could happen is that they might become very uh, aware of how influenceable they were or like how radical belief systems work and they might inoculate themselves permanently, which would mm -hmm. be great, right? Yeah, definitely. But I think there's also a risk that they just jump from gender identity theory into some other kind of radical belief system. Yeah, that's really common. And then, you know, that beautiful poem, um, autobiography in five verses. And I don't you know, know it. the first verse, you know, you're in a hole and you can't get out and it's not your fault. And, you know, you eventually get out. And then the second time you walk down the street, you fall in the hole and you can't believe you're back in the hole, but it's not your fault and it takes an awful long time to get out. And the third time, I think, you go down the street and you fall in a hole and you know it, you recognize it and you get out. And the mm. fourth time you fall back and you realize it is your fault. And anyway, the fifth verse, you walk down a different street. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, we'll include that in the show yeah, notes. It's beautiful That's poem. so nice. Yeah. That's so nice. And I, I think we all know that we, we repeat our patterns, but we recognize them sooner, often. And the first time we repeat it, we can't quite believe we've made the same mistake. Yes. That is yes. a horrible, frightening, awful. And it's very look like, you know, I have a pattern from childhood and I get out and then I walk straight back into that pattern. And I can't believe it. And it takes me a long time to get out. And then the third time, it's like, oh, my God, I'm back in. What are, am I ever going to shake this pattern? Mm. And you do. But it does take an awful lot of effort and support to get out yeah. of these these patterns. And that's I mean, that's essentially what therapy should be doing gently is showing you, helping you see your patterns, making you curious about your patterns. Yeah. You know, I also wonder if detransition is the next social contagion. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this. And the more we talk about detransitioners, the more attention they get, even if the activists try to put their own spin on what detransition is, this might be the next wave. And I think there's a more organic 
kind of time frame where detransition might happen purely because of things like medical complication, brain development, right? The regrets that are just part of the biological process of medical transition. But then there's also the social piece, right? Because we know that a lot of young people play with identity, take on different labels, drop the labels. All this can happen before they even touch a hormone or a medical process. And so I wonder if detransitioning and re-identifying with your birth gender is going to be some kind of social contagion. I'll just say really quickly, I heard from um, a parent recently who was saying that, you know, her, her teenage daughter is like the only person in her class that doesn't have some identity. And, and we were joking about how like, this is the new way of being subversive is just like being a boring cis straight kid. (laughs) So I, I just, I'm curious about the social elements involved in sharing detransition stories and what that might mean i i agree with you and it it would be lovely to get a a, you know a culture of desistance um but if it's going to be a culture of detransition it'll be a culture of detransition i i i'm not sure you know to me what way it's going to go but i do think that the more people understand that they exist uh, two years ago everybody just told me they didn't exist and they did i knew them but now they're not mm-hmm. saying that so so confidently. So, yeah, imagine a, yeah. a, a, a trend of detransition. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron... You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.